0: All right, we're going to read today from uh, Ezra, chapter 1 through uh, chapter 2, verse 1. The proclamation of Cyrus. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of, of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever, whomever is among you, uh, whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, and with goods, with beasts besides free-will offerings for the house of the Lord or the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites and everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were with them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out <clears throat> Brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them. Thirty basins of gold, one thousand basins of silver, twenty-nine censers, thirty bowls of gold, four hundred and ten bowls of silver, one thousand other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were five thousand four hundred. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Now these were the people of the province who came out of captivity of those exiles from Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town.
1: So we are in a brand new series. The gospel according to Ezra and Nehemiah. Kids, you are dismissed. Pray your blessing on the kids and the teachers as they learn about Jesus, not only transformation, but transformation. May the gospel be wonderfully taught and seen and received. The Gospel According to Ezra, Nehemiah. Take a little time to find it in your Bibles. Probably a book maybe you're not very familiar with. We're calling it The Gospel According to Ezra, Nehemiah because when Jesus began talking in one of his post-resurrection appearances to two men on the road to Emmaus, it said that he began to open up the Scriptures beginning with Moses, all the prophets. He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. So Ezra and Nehemiah is in this book because this book is the book about Jesus. This book is a book of gospel. Now Ezra may not be a very familiar book to you, but I hope when we get done with this series that will lead us to Easter, I'm hoping that you will appreciate its value in the history of God's people, its, its gospel significance in the equipping for the people today, both, both personally and corporately as God's people the main diet of our church as many of you know is expository preaching we go through books of the bibles verse by verse chapter by chapter and it's exciting always exciting for me to begin a new series because you know we've done some studies we've done some prep but it's I'm excited to see what God's going to challenge me what God's going to do in my heart as I work through this book and in the heart and the life of the people here at King's Chapel, the series Ezra and Nehemiah, these two redemptive historical books will bring us to Easter and the celebration of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now as we get into this book, I want to spend, if, if you're new here and we first time you've gone through a series with us, I want to spend a significant amount of time dealing with the historical background of this book. So in order to understand the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, we here at King's Chapel understand that the historical context of the book is very, very important. It's imperative to understand it, to interpret the narrative in light of the original intent. So we got to figure out what God was saying then before we could say what God is saying now. So if you don't like history and, and you don't want context, I'll wake you up when it's over because you're not going to like this. But for the rest of us who love history, who love context, right, you, you're, you'll, you'll, you'll stay with me and you'll see how important it is as we move forward in the book, as we lay some things out, um, how important it is to the context and to the, the uh, you know, interpretation and bringing to application as well. So we're going to do, is spend some time with that this morning. Um, I realize that, you know, I can't spend so much time in the text, but it's important that we understand the context before we get to the text. So we're going to go back. We're going to go back to creation. Some of you are thinking, wow. We'll go back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God creates the word ex nihilo. Out of nothing creates man and woman, Adam and Eve, in his image and likeness, with dignity, value, and worth, what we call the imago Dei. Okay? We know in Genesis 3 that our first parents sinned against God, rebelled against God, and that brought sin into the world, that brought destruction into the world, that brought chaos into the world, and death into the world. But in the midst of this sin, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of this darkness, God speaks. Speaks beauty, speaks promise, speaks covenantal promise. And he promises to send a deliverer in Genesis 3.15, the first gospel. He sends a, a deliverer, an offspring of a woman whose heel would be bruised but will ultimately crush Satan, destroy sin, defeat and crush the enemy, destroying death itself. Then as we move on in Genesis, you know about Noah and the flood. God makes a covenant with him and says he'll never destroy the earth again. He puts a rainbow in the sky as a reminder, as a sign and a seal of that covenant, and says this will remind us that he will never again destroy the earth by water. Then, if you know your Old Testament history, the Genesis moves on. There's Babylon. People settle in Babylon, they think they're cool, they want to build this, this tower, and they want to be like God, they want to make a name for themselves. God looks down, laughs, and says, No, we'll have none of that, and confuses the language. And though God said back in Genesis 6, while all this was going on, that the wickedness of man, verse 5 of chapter 6, was great in all the earth, and that every intention, every intention, of the thoughts of his heart heart was only evil continually. Bleak, I would say. Chapter 6, verse 6 of Genesis. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Man, when God looks down and is grieved about our sin, things are bad. But God could have wiped us all out but does not abandon his creation but calls Abram who later will become Abraham, the father of many nations. He says, come out of that pagan city, and I will send you to a place. I will show you where you will go, and you will go to a land. And God makes a covenant with Abraham in the continuation of Genesis 3.15, and he says to him, I will give you the land of promise. And he makes a covenant with him. He says in Genesis, you will be a father of a multitude of nations. You will be fruitful. I will make you into a nation. Kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you from generation to generation for an everlasting covenant. I will be your God, not only to you, but to your offsprings after you. I will give to you the land, the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be your God. And the calling in this covenant began this great era of the patriarchs. And this unconditional covenant p- promise began... Really, in Genesis, then Abraham, and now it's on to his children. Isaac and Jacob receive this promise, this covenantal promise to their father Abraham. We know in Genesis that Jacob had 12 sons. to become the 12 tribes of Israel. One of the sons is Joseph. You know the story, multiple a, color of, a coat of many colors. His brothers grab him, beat him up, throw him in a pit, leave him for dead, and then sell him to Egypt and tell dad he's dead. Jacob's uh, son Joseph comes out of the pit and he's sold to Egypt and he goes to Egypt when he, he, he's, he's in jail. We know the whole story. We went through Genesis. But he rises to power and he, he has a dream and he knows that famine is coming in the whole land and he says, Let's store food here in Egypt. And the king thinks it's a great idea and Joseph begins to store food. And because God is a God of, who, of, of sovereignty, He sends the famine, and that forces Jacob and his sons to leave the land of promise and go to Egypt for food where they meet Joseph. You know the story. And Joseph feeds them, and this clan, this family, this promise continues because they've eaten. They're not starved, and they're saved, and they're in Egypt, and they wind up living in a place called Goshen. Not Goshen, New York, if you're from around here. That's about two miles south of here, but Goshen in Egypt. And they're there, and Genesis ends with Jacob dying and his sons living in Goshen saved from the famine. Exodus opens, there's a new king. Doesn't know nothing about Joseph. He cares, the only thing he cares about as years go on is he sees the Israelites who are now living in Goshen multiplying like rabbits. They're like all over the place and it freaks him out. It's like, oh my word, look at these people. They're growing, they're growing. They're gonna conquer us. We need to do something. And he starts suppressing them. And and he starts putting them in slavery and treating them harshly in the land. And they cry out, oh, God, we're in slavery here. And what does God do? God raises Moses. You know the story that Moses is born. They're killing all the male uh, uh, Hebrews. And Moses put in a little basket, and he's sent on the river. And Pharaoh's daughter finds him, and he's raised up in Pharaoh's home. Years later, he sees them beating up a Hebrew. He gets angry. He kills an Egyptian and then flees to Midian for 40 years. And then he meets God face to bush, right, the burning bush. And he said who are you I am who I am But I want you to go I want you to go back to Pharaoh And tell him I am sent you And that he better let my people go Pharaoh said I ain't going for that Moses said you better let him go Ten plagues come And remember as we looked at Genesis a few months ago Or whenever it was That Moses did not just go to Pharaoh and say let my people go He always said let my people go so they may Serve their God So that they may worship their God That they may worship God Let my people go Pharaoh wants nothing to do with it, so they send 10 plagues. You know the story? 10th plague, firstborn, dies, and they rush out, right? They leave the land of Egypt. They're headed to the promised land. They get to the Red Sea. God parts the Red Sea with a miracle. They go through dry land. The sea comes down and kills all the Egyptians. But Moses, because of sin, after wandering in the desert, well, actually, while they're wandering, what happens, in, what's really important then? You remember? God goes, tells Moses, come on up to the mountain. And it gives him the Mosaic covenant, that promise, the law. Remember, always remember, when God gave the law to Moses in Exodus, it was after he delivered them, it was after their redemption. It was after they were saved. Then God says, this is your obligation. This is how this relationship's going to go now that you've been brought through out of slavery into, or at least leading into the promised land. And they're like, yo, we're so excited. We're free. We hear the whole law of God. And then in Moses, excuse me, in Exodus chapter 19, they hear all the law and they say they get all the leaders together. And it cracks me up every time I read this. It says Then all the people answered together after hearing all the law and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Like, no. (laughs) They probably sinned before they went to bed that night, right? The law is good. The law is holy, but we're sinful and we're rebellious. And the law is given so that we can see how much we need grace. How much we need mercy. Right? Wet paint don't touch. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's pointing to the Messiah. So on the evening of the eve of going into the promised land, Exodus closes and what comes next? Joshua. Because Moses is like, yo, Moses you see the promised land? You sinned against me. You're coming home. And we feel bad for Moses. Got to see the promised land but never entered into it. But He went to be with Jesus, so that's always a good thing. So he dies, and Joshua, the mighty warrior, book opens up. Joshua is what? Conquering lands. Giving back the promised land. I mean, given to the promised land. The promise of God coming true. They take over the land. The walls of Jericho fall down. All the little peas are running around the wall. You know the story, veggie tales for those who don't have kids. Um, and, and the walls come tumbling down and Joshua's all about the conquering of the land. All the 12 tribes get their land and they're in the promised land. They're settled down. <sighs> Wish the story ended right there, but it doesn't. They're settled in the land, but you know what? They get complacent. They get rebellious. Judges closes. and I mean, excuse me, uh, Joshua closes and judges open up. God brings judges into the land to, to draw these people back to their re, from their rebellious ways. That's what Judges all about. These regional leaders are raised up in the land of Canaan to, give them, uh, to, to keep them calling them back to their God. What would happen in Judges is Israel would rebel against God. God would discipline and sometimes send my little, these little army excursions into beating them up and disciplining them. They would say, oh my word, we're all beat up and bleeding, they would say, would say, I'm sorry, God, I'm so sorry, and then please deliver us, and God would raise up a judge, and God would bring them victory and bring them back to their God. Sounds like my life. But anyway. And the last verse in the book of Judges summarizes what was going on in those days. It says, There was no king in those days. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So everyone's doing what they're right in their own eyes. There was no king. So Samuel opens up after Judges, and now we have the last judge and, the first, and the, a prophet, and, and Samuel comes on the scene, and, and he's, he, he's there, and they're all crying out, we, we, want, we don't want Judges anymore, we want a king. God's like, I'm your king. No, no, it's not good enough. Everybody else has a king, and we want a king. God's like, I'll be your king. You just follow me. No, 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 we want to be like everybody else. So God's like, all right, you know what? You want a king? We'll give you a king. All right, you want a king? We'll give you a king. And who's the first king? Saul. You know what the Bible says about Saul? The Bible says that Saul was a handsome young man. In fact, there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. This is what it says. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than all the people. So Saul's like Jack right? Muscles everywhere. He's ripped. He's got blue eyes. You know, he's a handsome dude bulging all over the place, you know, strong and muscle guy. And like, yeah, that's our guy right there. That's the guy we want. Yeah. She, she, okay. When you're older. Okay. Anyways, knee to the ruler. He, he, he's a king, but because he's got all this going for him, him before him and after him men like that many times uh don't want to bow their knee to the king the real king the creator and the ruler of the universe and so god says you know what you're a hard-headed man you won't listen i'm taking the earthly kingdom and giving it to a shepherd boy the second king of israel who is david david is the son of jesse Samuel goes to the house of Jesse to anoint David as the second king and he has to remind the father that you have another boy that you're not telling me about. You know the story. Let me see all your king. Let me see all your men. And he lines up all his sons. The Lord's like, no, 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 no. That's it, that's it. You sure you don't have one other son? Oh, you know what? I do. I have so many I forgot. He's a little boy out in the, in the field here. Let's go get him. And God says, he will be king. That's the king. And even with David's Imperfections and sins, God's grace rests upon him. The Bible says that he's a man after God's own heart. And David becomes king and he builds this, this mighty nation of great power. And God comes to David like in the fashion he came to Abraham. And he makes a covenant promise with him. A, a unilateral, a, a unconditional covenant that someday from his house, from his lineage, from his seed, which we've seen over and over again, there will be a man who will be raised, who will have all authority, all power to reign and rule over an, an eternal kingdom. 2 Samuel seven twelve, He lays it out for him. You shall build a house with me. My name will be there. I will establish a throne for his kingdom. And this son, this seed, it will be in your house and your kingdom shall be forever and ever and ever. This was what the people of Israel were waiting for for centuries. The promise of, In the midst of chaos in Genesis 3, the promise given to Abraham and the generations to follow, the promise that was given to David and and the eternal king who will come, that will be one who will be the ruler and reigning sovereign of the world, who will come and establish an eternal kingdom. But then David dies. And his son Solomon comes to power. Now if you ever did walk through the Bible, I did that many years ago, you'll learn the first thing, you'll learn this about the first three kings. Saul, no heart. David, whole heart. Solomon, half heart. But maybe somebody knows that. Okay, half heart. So King Solomon comes, he builds a temple. He finally builds the house of God, the Shekinah glory, the Panim, the face of God, the presence of God comes, and God is meeting intimately in the temple with his people. But Solomon doesn't end very well. Caught up with some foreign women. I won't say anything. And then Solomon dies. And when Solomon dies, this, this... During Solomon's reign, it was like what they call the uh, golden years. Like they expanded their borders. They grew power and strength. Israel was a mighty force. I mean, it was just an, ex- it's just an explosion of these 12 tribes and the power and money and authority they had. And then when Solomon dies, the kingdom is split, fractured in two. Two parts, northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and they just split. Ten tribes, ten of the twelve sons we talked about, ten of them go to the north, and it's called Israel. They, they keep the name Israel, ten tribes. Two tribes to the south, Judah and Benjamin, and they're called Judah. So just imagine for a moment, we're in the Civil War back years ago, and, and, and the United States fractures to the south and to the north, you have two separate entities rather than the United States. And this is what's going on in that kingdom. And and just so you know, in the northern kingdom there were twelve tribes, and the two there was, in the south there were two. And in the ten tribes of the north, Israel, there was absolutely zero, nada, nothing, no good king at all. They wanted a king, and the northern kingdom, the ten tribes had not one single good king. They were all wicked, and all the kings who were wicked had all the people following those wicked kings. That's when you get into like 1 Kings, 2 Kings, First and 2 Chronicles. You're reading about these wickedness of these kings in the northern kingdom. And by that time, God had raised up prophets, mouthpieces for him to speak to the northern and the southern kingdoms. People like Hosea and Amos speaking against Israel, talking to Israel, saying, look, there's a kingdom, there's, there's a coming Destruction, you guys are in trouble. You keep sinning against your God and God's not going to take it. Discipline is coming and you guys are in trouble if you don't repent of your sin. They didn't listen. 724 BC, the Assyrian nation, the Assyrian army who was in power, world power at that time, began to attack the northern kingdoms. In 722 BC, the Assyrian army captures Samaria and the whole northern kingdom, those 10 tribes, end Gone. The Syrian nation would come in, they would they attack the ten tribes, and what they would do is they would murder, plunder, and then they would take the Israelites and the people in which they plundered, Israelites, and then they would march back to their cities, particularly in Nineveh for, uh, Syria. Assyria, and deport Jews along the way. Just dropping them off on the way. And then bring a whole bunch of them into their own city and just blowing up their culture. Let's just let's just blow them up. Let's just let's just rip, can you imagine that? Can you imagine your whole family just being ripped like that apart? And just, you know, it's not cell phone days, right? So they're just ripped apart and being planted all over the place. And God, in his mercy, God in his mercy, at that time when the Syrian nation came in and did this, the Syrian nation started marching on Jerusalem to take the southern kingdom as well. And God in his mercy stopped it from happening. There was a king, his name was Hezekiah, I believe. Let me see what his name is. Um, yeah, Hezekiah. And, and he prays to God. He said, Lord, please don't let this happen. I, I know the Syrian army's coming. I know what they just did to the north, but please don't let this happen. And Isaiah, God raised Isaiah the prophet at that same time. So when you read Isaiah, that's what was going on. And he's preaching. And he promises it's not gonna happen at this time. It's not gonna happen at this time. And God keeps his promise and God spares Judah for a season. That's 722 BC. Now, even though Judah... The southern tribe, two of them, had a few good kings. You read about them in First and Second Kings and Chronicles. And they saw what happened to the northern 12 tribes. And they had their own prophets. They had Isaiah. They had Micah preaching. Jeremiah warning them. They still did not listen and rebelled against God. So during this time, the Assyrian nation, Assyrian army, the Assyrian world power, gets under attack by the Babylonians. And in 612 BC, the Assyrian army falls. Babylon marches in Nineveh, they capture the city, and now we have a change of world power. The Assyrian nation, the Assyrian power is destroyed, and Babylon comes to world power. Now, you may say, well, what does that really have significance? Let me tell you something. More than a century earlier, the prophet Isaiah had warned the Jews that the people would be taken to Babylon. Before Babylon was even in any threat at all. And that Babylon would be raised, Isaiah 6, Isaiah 11. And Babylon would be used as a tool of destruction and discipline against God's people. And here it is, almost 200 years later, it's exactly what happened. Listen to what Isaiah said. This is 150, 20 years before. Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming. When all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon, nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And the prophecy is fulfilled. The Syrian army is conquered. The Babylonians rise in power. And then three separate invasions. First in 605, Nebuchadnezzar marches in. Jerusalem takes the royal family and deports them in 605. 597, he sends another 7,000 men of might and craftsmen into exile. And then in 586, 587 BC, the Babylonians walk in, conquer, destroy Jerusalem, burning the city, burning the temple. Judah is deported like the rest of them. Babylon did the same thing as the Assyrians, and many of the people were taken back to Babylon and being deported back to that. That's where Daniel went. Read the book of Daniel. He's being deported. He was on, I think he was on the first or second deportation. There was three of them. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All that's taking place here at this time. Now, they conquered, they conquered Jerusalem. The two tribes of the south are done away with. And then the Babylonians leave a man, if you read this in Second Kings at the end, a man by the name of Gedaliah. He's the governor of Judah. They say, you're the governor of Judah now. No one likes him. You can imagine. The place is burning down. All your people are gone. Everything's has been deported. We got a governor. We don't really care. God then speaks to a man by the name of Jeremiah during this turmoil, during this incredible turmoil of what's going on. And, and they call him the weeping prophet. And the reason why they call him that is because he has no good news. You know, he just has nothing good to say. It's all this destruction, but he's the mouthpiece of God. And he starts talking destruction. Prophets are raised and go, you know what? We're going to be in exile for only two years. Thus saith the Lord. Jeremiah's like, don't listen to that idiot. That is not true. You're going to be in there 70 years. So settle down. 70 years you will be there. We're going to read that in a moment. 70 years. They don't like him either. They like two. I don't know, 270. I mean, I'll take two over 70. They try to kill him. Jeremiah goes to Egypt where He dies. So when you get to the middle of the 500s BC's where we will be, I want you to feel this, okay? I did all this for a reason. Number one, the city of God is burned to the ground. The city of God is destroyed. The people of God have been murdered, plundered, taken into captivity. Spread like seed all over the world. Feel that. The mighty nation that God delivers in this massive exodus out of Egypt, millions of Jews that have been given to the promised land are now scattered to the uttermost parts of the earth by different world powers. It looks like all the covenant promises of God, all the things that God had said that God made promises to his covenant people are dead, burned, and gone. Feel that. Abraham's around 2000 BC, don't roughly. Here it is, 1500 years later, destruction, burned to the ground. Now we're in the middle of the 500s BC, actually 539 BC, while they're in captivity. One year before Ezra opens up in 538 BC, the Babylonian army is conquered by the Persians. King Cyrus uh, Cyrus conquers Babylon and defeats the Babylonians, and now the world power during the, reign, uh, or during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah is the Persians, one year before the book opens up. In fact, the entire book of Ezra and Nehemiah takes place during the time of the Persian Empire. These two books in antiquity were really called the Ezra and Nehemiah book. One book. To the Hebrews, it's one book. because they, They're simultaneously pointing to they simultane simultaneously pointing to the restoration of God's people, both the temple and the walls. So the book of Ezra, if you're there, you'll see ends, begins, excuse me, at the end of 2 Chronicles. If you look down at 2 Chronicles, the last few verses are the very same verses that Ezra opens up with. We'll talk about that next week. We don't have time for that. And both books, so 2 Chronicles closes, deportation, Ezra opens up, and it's 70 years later. 70 years later, and, and, and both the books are, are restoration. They're all about reestablishing and restoring the covenant community of the promised land and the people of covenant, okay? So the book of Ezra and Nehemiah is all about going back. The book of Ezra and Nehemiah is all about the new exodus. The book of Nehemiah is all about the second exodus of God's people who were in captivity and now going back. Like they were in Egypt, they're going back to the promised land. They're returning back to what God had promised. They're returning back and seeing before their very eyes God fulfilling his promises to Israel. So Ezra, who's Ezra? According to Ezra 7.10, Ezra was a priest. Ezra was a man, the Bible says, devoted himself to the study and the observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. He was a Bible scholar. He exposited the scriptures and he taught the people the word of God. And Ezra's concern is the spiritual life of God's people, the restoration of worship. Nehemiah as we get when we get to Nehemiah is more about a political leader. He's more of a a brilliant leadership Uh, He has brilliant leadership skills to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Ezra and Zerubbabel, we'll see that about the temple. Nehemiah goes and restores the wall. This study is all about the restoration of God's people. Restoration of the temple and the restoration of the walls and its protection for God's people. I'm going to give you five things. If you, if you want, you could talk about these. Um, we'll put them up somewhere. Actually, they're on the table app. Um, if you look on the sermon on the table app. We'll give you five, five major themes for the book. Okay? First, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah teaches us the cohesive plan and purposes of God. These books clearly show that God is sovereign, that God is even using not only his own people, but all the world powers, all the kings and nations and, and armies to ensure the continuation of God's redemptive plan through the seed of Abraham, the Jewish people. We clearly see that in this book. Number two, the centrality of the word of God. Ezra and Nehemiah, will see, we'll go back to what the scriptures say. What has God, Ezra's gonna read the scripture, people are gonna fall and bow. God is speaking. It's about the centrality of God's word. Also, it's about the credence of prayer. Needed to see it fits the credence of prayer. The importance of prayer is, is, is mingled and saturated and foundational in this book. Number four, the consecration of the people of God. What we'll see in this book is that even though they're in the promised land, they are to be careful not to assimilate to the sins of the people around them. They're going to look at marriage as one of the big things that come up. That they are to be separate and, and, and marry those of like faith or like culture in that day. They are married in the Lord, as the New Testament tells us. And number five, they're not in any particular order. The continued worship of the God's people. This book's about worship. We're going to see that here today. This book is about God's people going back to God's place, to God's house, to God's rules, to God's law, to God's word, and worship appropriately. Those are the five things. We'll have them up for you if you don't. I got to keep moving on. Let me just give you a short outline, and we're going to pull out three principles, and we're closed. Okay? Short outline of just Ezra. Ezra, the book of Ezra opens up with the decree of Cyrus in about 538 B.C. Ezra is broken up into two very neat parts. Ezra, chapter 1 through chapter 6, deals with the return. Of the exiles and the restoration of the temple. Chapters 1 through 6, exiles and the restoration of the temple. While they're there and restoring this temple in those chapters, they stop working and they get complacent and God raises up Haggai. If you ever read Haggai, that's the time period. They're back, they're restoring the temple and they stop and go, ah, you know what, let's, let's kick back and relax. And God's like, no, 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 you're here for a reason, get busy. Haggai, go preach to them. So you read Haggai, that's the, that's the context. And then about 16 or 18 years after they get started with this temple process, they finally finish the temple, and it's dedicated in 520 B.C. Okay, Ezra 1 through Ezra 6. Ezra 7 opens up with the first mention of Ezra. And it's 60 years later, Ezra shows up. Ezra was not even born yet, I don't probably when one through six is happening. Ezra shows up 60 years later after the temple is built, and Ezra shows up, and he's about reformation. He's about restoring worship, bringing the word of God to God's people. And then, of course, Nehemiah will open up, which we'll get to when we get there in 446 B.C., 13 years after Ezra, and he's about getting the walls rebuilt. So I want you to feel that. I want you to sense that. I want you to see the promises of God dating so far back and then the continuing work of God getting them to the place of now the decree opens up in Ezra chapter one, verse one. They've been in exile. They've been spanked. Second time they've been in exile. First time we know they just went for food. Second time it was because of God's discipline. And now Cyrus is raised up. And Cyrus says, all right, Jews, go on home. Go on home. No place like home, right? They've been away for a long period of time. Even how beautiful it is. We went to Italy. We've been to Mexico. It's beautiful. It's just nice to be home. It's just something about home. 70 years. 70 years they've been waiting to go home. Three things. We'll close on these three. We won't well, I'll hit it fast, so we'll we'll go. We'll close before dinner. Number one, the preservation of God's people. We'll see the preservations of God's people. We'll see the provision of God's people and the progression of God's people. We'll go through these quickly. You could talk about them in community group. The preservation, the provision, and the progression of God's people. Ezra chapter one, verse one. In the year of Cyrus, king of Persia, his first year in power that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, 70 years of captivity, so that he made a proclamation throughout all the kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judea, Judah. Whoever is among you, Of all his people, may his God, catch that, be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in where? Jerusalem. Listen, the overarching promise or reality of the opening of this book is God preserves his people by keeping his covenantal promises to them. God keeps his promises by keeping his promise to the covenantal people that he made that promise to. Notice in verse one, let me point this out, it's not so much on the feature of their return, but the fulfillment of the word. Of God's word, that word, that promised word. Look how Ezra opens up. It came to the people. Now that the word of God is being fulfilled, what had been spoken by the prophet. They're going back from Babylon. They're headed back to Judah because the word of the Lord has been spoken and God will keep his word. The prophet, while they were headed into exile, stood up and said these words 70 years earlier. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years, this is Jeremiah 29.10, a verse that is thrown around with incredible disregard to context. I'm sorry to say that, but it is. Well, thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I'll hear you you will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations, all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. That's the context. Oh God, and nothing will ever happen to me because you, look at the promise you make. No. God's promise is he will always fulfill his promises to you. God's promise is that everything that's happened in trial, difficulties, good, the bad, the ugly is for your good. Let's not claim this, something that's not meant to be. So people use this, but the reality is God is sovereign. God is moving on the heart of king of Persia to fulfill his promise to the Jews, to preserve his people that he had graciously called out beginning with Abraham, and that he, he said, for no really reason but because of grace, have I called you my people to myself. Folks, th- this, is, this is not a wimpy God who stands back and, and just says, oh man, I hope Cyrus will listen to me. I, I hope he, uh, but Jeremiah did say 70 years ago, it's been 70 years, uh, Cyrus, uh, let's see what he does. That's not what we have here. Proverbs 21 says the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. In fact, Ezra chapter 1 verse 2 is a hammer blow to God's keeping his promises. Do you know in Isaiah 44, again, hundreds of years before, before Cyrus was even thought of probably by his parents, it says, I will raise up Cyrus this is what Isaiah is saying. He will be a shepherd. He will fulfill all my pleasures and I will rebuild the temple. You can read it for yourself. Isaiah forty four twenty eight. 28. The book of Ezra and Nehemiah is about that fulfillment. Jeremiah's word, Isaiah's word. Now, let, let, let me just read to you so you can just kind of grasp what this must have meant. Second Kings, 2 uh, Chronicles. 2 Kings. This is what happened in the fall of Judah. Just let me read a couple verses, just a few. This is 70 years ago. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, all the armies laid siege to it. Famine struck the city. There was no food for the people in the land. They breached the city. All the men of valor fled at night. The Chaldeans pursued the king and took him and captured him and passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. They plucked his eyes out and bound them in chains and took him to Babylon. They burned the house of the Lord, the king's house, and every house in Jerusalem. All the great houses were burned to the ground. They plundered the cities. They went into the temple. They drew out all the the bronze and the the stands and and the pieces and the shovels and the stuff and the dishes, everything in the temple, and they brought it to Babylon, and they murdered everyone. I mean, that's what it says. What that tells me is no matter how bad things are, no matter how difficult things may be, no matter what's happening around us, God will preserve his people by keeping the promises that he made to them. Now, I realize it's easy to say we claim the promise of God and we have our promises, and that's good. But when trial comes and darkness comes and chaos comes and brokenness comes, it's so much harder, is it not? But this is teaching us God keeps his promises. This is a reminder that nations armies, countries, rulers, dictators, and yes, even presidents will come and go, but God's people will be preserved. That's what this is telling us. God's word, God's people will never, ever, ever be annihilated. Why? Because in the midst of sin and brokenness and rebellion, even their own, Israel, even their own, God was sovereign, God will preserve, God's able to preserve his people and fulfill the promises he's made to them. Sovereignty means that God is omnipotent, that God is all-powerful, that he has the authority, he has the right to govern the universe with his wise and holy purposes, pointing and moving everything along to his intended wise purposes. And his providence is that, is that working that we're seeing here, that working of God, how he does, how he provides, how he, how he preserves and manages creation. His creation, working everything out to his eternal plans, particularly his redemptive plans of saving us from our sins. And yeah, Scripture teaches us that, that God is sovereign and man is sinful. But look at the text. There's a lot going on here, but the, but the, but the word of the Lord is being fulfilled. And the word of God is being fulfilled. God is stirring the heart of Cyrus He's a pagan king. He's not a believer. It says, look what it says. I mean, he, he talks about the God of Israel, the God of heaven, but verse three, may his God. He's not my God. And God's, he's a, he's a politician. He may be a better politician than the ones before him, but he's not a worship of the one true God. I mean, who do you think put it in his heart to maintain an empire, which he did, allowing all these people to continue their worship of their own gods? He was very, he was very ecumenical. And his views. Wasn't like Babylon. Wasn't like Assyria. He thought, you know what? If I just let people do what they want in their religious perspectives, they'll love me. We'll all get along. Who put that in his heart? God did. Go back to your place, he says. But in the end, let me tell you something. Babylonian gods, Assyrian gods, and all other gods are gone. Israel's God, Yahweh, is seen as sovereign. And in the end, gets the last laugh. Right? Every empire will come and go. Soviet Roman, Nazis, even America, if God tarries, will come and go. But God's people, there will always be a remnant. Praise God, there will always be a remnant of God's people to worship the one and true and living God. There will always be a remnant. God will always protect and preserve his people. The promises made he will fulfill. Number two, we'll move on. Number two, the provision. Look at at verse four. Let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men in his place. While you're living in Babylon, silver and gold, goods and beasts, and besides, free will offerings for the house of God. When you get to Jerusalem, verse six, and all who were about them aided them, gave them silver and gold, goods, beasts, costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. So if you look at this chapter in its totality, you'll see that so much of this chapter really has to do with provisions that God is preparing and allowing the Israelites to go back to the promised land. And you know, that's what happened in Exodus. When God called Moses and Moses led them out of slavery, if you look at the text, you'll see that God says, listen, before you leave, I'm gonna send the 10 plagues, they're gonna be dead, they're gonna be screaming, bloody murder. But there are all kinds of people that are gonna give you everything you need for your journey. Like, Really? They're going to, yep, God said, yeah, I'm going to make it happen. And that's exactly what happened. We get to Nehemiah, and Nehemiah's his king is like, yeah, go back. In fact, what do you need? How much money do you need? Well, I'll finance the whole thing. Go back and build the walls in Jerusalem. I, whatever you need, take with you. Like, really? W- w- what is he saying? Well, God's, w- w- what it's saying to me anyway, I think the text is saying, God never gives us or sends us on a mission that he does not give us what we need. God does not send us on mission and does not give us what we need. But here's the thing I want us to see, okay, as we move to the third point. James reminds us in his book, which is very important, very relevant. James, James, the book of James says, the reason that we fight and we quarrel, we don't have stuff, is because we don't get it because the things that we want, the things that we pursue, are not the things that God wants. It's not the things of God. In other words, we're on mission, but we're, we're doing our own journey, we're doing our own thing, because then we don't have enough of what we want to do for what we want. And then we get angry, cry, and we moan and complain because we don't have enough to do what we want to do. And James like, yeah, because you want to do what you want in your own pleasures. But, but if you see God in his face, he'll give you what you need. And the people here are getting not necessarily what they want, but what they need. Look at verse 7 with me. Not only did they get that stuff to travel, but it says in verse 7 that Cyrus brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that, the, that, that Nebuchadnezzar stole. From the temple and gave it back to the people. Verses 7 through 11. Does that seem odd? Why is that there for us? Why is all this about the the, the stuff that they brought back? Well, these were artifacts. These were the utensils that we used in the temple. You need to know that one of the most, well, the most important function of the temple, and this temple that was destroyed, that's getting being restored now, the most important function was to provide opportunity for the for this priest to sacrifice for the atonement of their sins. The day of atonement, the high priest would come in and, and sacrifice and, and slaughter and, and there would be a, 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 an atoning work of, of, of sin for himself and then for the people. And before the exile, while they were in Jerusalem, the Israelites were assured that during this day of atonement, during the sacrificial religious system that was given to them, for the moment, they were forgiven. Yeah, the prophet said, you know, be careful, let, let your whole heart be in, it's not just your sacrifice, I want your heart, I get all that, but they still understood that they were guilty, they were broken, they were sinful, and they needed to approach a holy God through a sacrifice, and now they're in captivity, there's no way to do that. So for 70 years, there was, I'm sure they worshiped the best they could, but there's no way for them to go back to the temple to see the slaughtering of the animals, the shedding of the blood, the forgiveness and the joy of knowing that their sins have been forgiven. It's not just a building. It's not just a place. It's the place where God was. It was a place where worship was. And now, for the first time, they're able to go back and worship. And we see this, this think for the day. I think it was um, a guy named Derek Kidner. He says, he says, think through the day of those people that were there and headed back and they got all their stuff, their family, they're ready. And all of a sudden, the treasury opens up and all the things of God. All the things of the temple, all the things that they used that God described for them to worship him, for their sins to be forgiven, to enjoy the fellowship of their God was brought out before them. What joy it must have been on their hearts to say, we're going back to worship our God. We're going home. We're going home. James Hudson Taylor, British China uh, missionary to China, said God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. And God, what God is first and foremost wants is worship, being seen, being savored, being treasured above all things. Wouldn't it be great, 2015, King's Chapel, we're about serving, worshiping our God. So we see here the preservation of God's people. We see the people being prepared to go back to worship their God. And finally, we see the progression. Look at verse five, then rose up the heads of the father's. House of Judah and Benjamin and the priests, the Levites, everyone whose spirit God stirred up to go to rebuild the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Verse Chapter 2, verse 1. Go down there. It says, now these were the people of the providence who came up out of the captivity, whose exile was from Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each one to his own town. Now, I just want to point out one thing. I realized after looking at God's preservation, God's preparing, God's uh, giving what they need, stirring the heart of Cyrus, giving them the temple stuff back. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar could just burn that temple stuff. Here it is, 70 years later, it's been stored perfectly. Tell me God's not sovereign, okay? And here they see all that. They stir the heart of Cyrus. They stir in the heart of God's people. And some people may look at that and walk away and say, well, the Bible's really just teaching us that we're puppets on a string. That God's stirring the heart, God is stirring the people, God has stirred this and declared all this to be done, we're just puppets on a string before God in this orchestrated way of life. That's not true. What we see here is God stirring and men and women progressing, men and women responding. The people had to get off their couches. And travel a long distance. Ezra is saying, look, God is sovereign. God has spoken. His plans no one will thwart. But people move. Look, chapter 2, verses all the way down. We're not going to read all those names. But those were all the people that went. So we, you know, I, I think sometimes, depending on your bent, your theological position, maybe your experience, um, maybe you know, how you're wired, we tend to fall on two extremes when we read stuff like this. We say, look how God is absolutely sovereign and his promises will always come to be. He moved on the heart of the king. He moved on the heart of the people. He's finished what he started. He promised. He's stirring everybody up. And all that's true. So then we say, "His determined his will will come. What, what does it matter what we do? His, 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 there's nothing man can do to change his plans and that's true. So we just sit back and we wrongly conclude that God is in charge, so what we do doesn't really matter, and that's not biblical at all. The author goes to great length to say, these are the families we're talking about. Look, you can read the names 2,500 years ago. Ezra says, here are the people that came up. So it matters. And yet some people see this and say, you know what, it does matter. In fact, our choices are real, which they are, and they have great consequences, which they do, so therefore God limits himself and God holds back some of his sovereignty or he's not really sovereign, he's not really in control. That's not true either. In fact, there's a heretic teaching of someone who is uh, by the name of Gregory Boyd, is one of them, who teaches open theism. It's heretical. It's a lie. They say either God voluntarily limited himself because the knowledge that he has, uh, the people's free will, they have free will, therefore God's got to know, you know, kind of just like really not know what's going on in order for your decisions to be real. Or God really doesn't know. He knows every particular thing that could be done, but he's not sure what you're going to do until it's done. Both are wrong, not scripture. What you see in all the scripture is God is sovereign. He is powerful. He is all powerful. He's the right and authority, govern all things, and we are still responsible. Our choices matter. If you can't figure it out, join the club. But those two tracks run equally along scripture. In the book of Acts, we were looking at chapter 27. Remember, Paul's on the ship. The ship is being banged around. Looks like they're gonna sink. God says, don't worry. You guys are gonna be just fine, Paul. I will spare you. Right, remember that? He said, take courage. Not one person's going to die. And then he said to everybody, then Paul goes, says to everybody, listen, take courage. Stay on the boat. If you stay on the boat, not one single hair will be ruined. Right? Take some food. Get some strength. So God's sovereign. We're going to stay. We're going to do good. You got to do this. Isn't that the way the scripture is? Isn't that the Bible? Nehemiah 4 says, God tells him, listen, I got you back. Listen, Lord, please help us. They're attacking us, Nehemiah. Yes, and God's like, yeah, I got your back. Tell those guys to get some swords. Okay. The Lord got us back. Get a sword. Go on the pot. You know, let's do both. Let's take responsibility. Let's do it. So God's sovereignty never retracts our responsibility. So we can either say, ah, uh, I'm going to acquiesce and just kind of just go along life and not really get involved, and God's going to take somebody else and use somebody else and leave you behind, or we're going to be one of those people who think, I could do this better. I really, I'm a much better God. God, you really don't know what's going on, obviously. Look around, and then you become a worry wart. You're freaking out all the time because the whole place looks chaotic, and you think, no one's in control around here, so I am gonna have to be. Ulcers, heart attacks, and all that other stuff, you wanna be your own God. The Bible says, God is sovereign, relax. You know, what? all the turmoil going on in America, and there is. And, and, and you know what? We should fight for what's right. We should honor the king, uh, pray for the president, fight for things in our school. All those things are good. But let not the people of God be so anxious that they're not settled, that America may come and go. God's people will be preserved. Let, let, let's stand on that truth and still fight for what's right. But let's not be so anxious now, the, the people in our text knew what God was up to when the king gave his decree. They knew God was preserving them. They knew that God was providing for them. Why? Because he's sovereign, so they responded in obedience. The sovereignty of God not only gives peace in my soul, but moves me to obey, because God is sovereign. Okay, so I mean, I, I want you to see that. You just can't sit back. One of the, one of the great verse, and um, we'll end in this verse, Philippians chapter 2. A good verse to remember. God's working. God's sovereign. We have responsibilities. Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, right? Obeyed. You've got to obey. Not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your salvation. It's not yours. You didn't earn it. You can't lose it. It belongs to God. But work it out with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work, to do of his good pleasure. Okay, Salvation is one hand. Sanctification there's a working with God. He's still sovereign. I still have responsibilities. Let me end our study with this. Just like when we studied Moses, we did a gospel according to Moses, and we saw this great exodus from Egypt. We said that Jesus was the greater, Jesus was the better Moses. Jesus, unlike Moses, who delivered the people from the tyranny of the Egyptian, Jesus, the the greater Moses, delivered us from the power and penalty of sin and death. But here today, we're reminded, as the people are in this mass exodus, this second exodus, and they're en route to Jerusalem for worship, centuries later, on the road to Jerusalem for the third time, the real king, the ultimate king, the ultimate deliverer, the ultimate promised one turns to his disciples and says, we're gonna get to Jerusalem and let me tell you what's gonna happen when we get there, Mark 10. They were on the road going to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed and those who followed also were afraid. And taking the 12, he began again the third time to tell him what's gonna happen. He said, listen, we are going up to Jerusalem. We're headed to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests, the scribes. They will condemn him to death. He'll be crucified, right? And deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. But three days later, he will rise again. That text tells us that Jesus was walking alone, which is customary for the rabbi, in that day, right? But something very different going on. Jesus was headed to Jerusalem. The reality of the cross And all that was involved was before him. He was determined. He was adamantly focused and he was headed. And the disciples were amazed and others were afraid. And I think they saw in Jesus, because in Luke 9 it says, he set his face to Jerusalem. They knew, man, that dude is adamant. He is headed one place and one place open, one place only. And what's going to happen to him there? He's going to be murdered. Isaiah says about Jesus, his face was set like a flint, unmovable. He was absolute, with absolute resolute and determined and adamant not to deter. Though suffering lie ahead, he knew it, and his disciples knew it, and the crowd knew it, and that was that strange elephant in the room. He was determined, Jesus resolved to go forward. He was going to Jerusalem also. I was reminded this week by Chris Caggiano,
0: he said, in Ezra
1: we have a contrast of the many going to Jerusalem and the one, the true one, the better one, Jesus, who went to the cross, the one for the many. Not to the temple or to restore the temple, but as the temple. Not as a continuation of sacrifices, but the one sin for all, sacrificed for sin. The Bible says in Hebrew that Jesus sacrificed once It's all that's necessary. Once a final sacrifice and then sat down the right hand of his father. Completion. Done. That table, this table in our church this morning as we celebrate communion is the covenantal promise of God. God that God promised in Genesis, God fulfilled on the cross, the resurrection, and points to the church, God's people, as he's preserved his people for centuries, as he's kept his covenantal promise to his people for centuries, as he's provided for his people for centuries, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's what Ezra and Nehemiah is about. The restoration and the fulfillment of the most important covenantal promise God makes. It's called the new covenant found in the blood of Jesus Christ. So as a church, we're going to celebrate. As a people, we're going to celebrate. We're going to remember the promises of God. I don't know where you're at right now, but maybe God has spoken to you about being your own God, about not trusting in him, about relying on your own promises rather than trusting in, in the promises of God. Maybe God wants to do as he did with these people to to bring them back to the place of total surrender and worship. Maybe that's where you're at. Or maybe you never invited Jesus. You never trusted in Jesus. It's the first time you've heard about these thousands of year promises that point to Jesus. Today's the day of your salvation. Repent of your sin. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. He is the covenant, the promise. He is the promised one. He is the one that conquered sin, death, and hell itself on the cross of Calvary. If you've never trusted him, today's the day. Just say, Jesus, I have sinned against you. I am a sinner. I need forgiveness. You died for me. You rose for me. I receive your forgiveness. Come into my life. Be the Lord of my life. So I'm stopped. It's called repentance. Turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. The band's gonna come up. God's people are gonna repent. Repentance is for all people. If you never received Jesus, repentance is the gateway, repentance and faith into trusting Christ and becoming a Christian. But as people of God, we repent too because we're sinners too. So we need to repent. Whatever it is God's calling on your heart. So the band's gonna play. We're gonna quietly in our own hearts repent, confess, and repent of our sins and then we're gonna come and we're gonna celebrate the Lord's covenantal promise. Take a piece of bread. Take the juice. And celebrate communion together. If you're a Christian, this table's for you. If you're not, we wanna talk to you. We wanna show you and point to you to the one who could save your soul. Father, thank you. For your powerful word, the wonders of your promise, the splendor of your majesty, the goodness of your soul and your heart, that you love your people. You made a promise to them. And although we've rebelled and and we see ourselves in this story over and over again, but you kept your promise to us. And you sent your son an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And Lord, this table represents the promises coming Really, to a head on the cross, where your wrath was poured out upon your son, the Lord Jesus, and then, after atoning for our sins, you did not leave him in the grave, Lord Jesus. You rose victorious over sin, death, and hell, and you're calling people everywhere to repent and believe in you, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So, Father, as we sing, let us reflect on what's been said, your Word, and Father, I pray that you would send your Spirit to convict us of our sins, show us the joy of Christ, and to see the great salvation that you've provided for each one of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.